Hey everybody, it is episode 119 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you with this intro from Austin, Texas. It's actually in March. This recorded, this episode was recorded that we're going to play today was recorded in February. We had the great Ryan Hall come to Rogue here in Austin and be live in the studio with me, which was really, really cool. He was in town doing some other events for his book coming out and we're going to be talking to him about his career but also his book which is basically an autobiography of his career the book is called run the mile you're in and we'll break all of that down with ryan hall in the interview really really good discussion i think we got some fun notes from him on it plus got a little bit of a preview on how he and sarah are thinking about sarah doing her first boston as we start the interview so a fun and good discussion. His book, incidentally, is coming out on April 16th. So we'll be out in a few weeks right after Boston. And you can pre-order that now on Amazon and other places as well. So I would highly encourage you to, to pick up a copy of the book. And we'll give you a preview today via this interview. I'm not going to do a long intro today. I've got some some notes and events and announcements that I want to cover off on and then we'll jump right into the interview with Ryan. First of all, for those that are in Austin, I'm recording this on the 29th. It'll be released on March 31st. I'm actually going to do a live podcast recording in Austin in our store and I want you guys to come check it out. It's going to We'll be having a Facebook event going up or may already have it up by the time you're listening to this. But basically on April 4th, Chris Lear is going to be here and we're going to be doing a live podcast recording with him starting about seven o'clock at Rogue. I'll include the Facebook event page in the show notes so you can get all the detail. But if you're listening to this sometime between the 31st and the 3rd and you're from Austin, Come check out my live podcast and interview with audience interaction with Chris Lear, who's the author of Running with the Buffaloes. I recently did that episode with Adam Goucher. On that book, Chris Lear also wrote another book called Sub 4 that followed the early career of Alan Webb. And, and Alan, of course, is the U.S. mile record holder. So this will be something cool. I've never done a live podcast podcast recording i've done obviously the facebook live events for new york and boston but this will be my first live podcast so come to rogue in austin april 4th about 7 p.m we're gonna have fun and you'll get to ask questions of chris lear if you have them so that's one note on current events second note on current events is i'll be in boston soon i recently just got confirmed to have a press pass again for boston which i'm really really excited about and I'll have some events in Boston where we can connect. Plus, those that aren't in Boston, I'll be doing my live call again on Facebook Live like we did last year. And so just wanted to give you guys a heads up on what's coming. I'll be going to the press conferences, which will be good. I'll be doing a preview episode, of course, to release that Friday before Boston with my predictions and updates from the press conferences. So that'll go up the Friday before Boston. And then on the Sunday before Boston from 2 to 3 at the Weston Copley 7th Floor Empire Room. I want to open it up for anybody who's in Boston or listeners to come check it out. We're doing our 
rogue talk with our rogue training members in that room from three to four, but from two to three, if you want to come early, meet me and maybe get some last minute tips or, or questions answered about Boston, then come check it out. That'll be the Weston Copley, the Sunday before Boston between two and 3 PM seventh floor empire room. So we'd love to meet you if you want to come say hi there. And then of course that Monday on our Facebook page, rogue at rogue running on Facebook, we'll have a live call. We'll be doing it again from the UFOs pop-up there in Boston, which will be on Newberry Street, just west of Hereford this time, I believe. And so if you if you just find that UFOs pop-up shop, you'll be able to come if you're spectating, or you can watch it from Facebook Live. I'll be having a new co-host with me, Scotty Mack. Scott McPherson, who's been a guest on this show, will be joining me. He works for UFOs. Came on the show, did a little cameo when I went to the bathroom last year. And so you've seen him already, at least on the live podcast. He has run Boston twice, has run a 218 or 219. His claim to fame is beating Ryan Hall at Boston. And so it'll be good to get his intel on the course and the race as we go. So check out that live call. And then the other thing I would just say for this weekend, which will have already happened by the time you're listening to this, is World Cross Country Championships in Denmark just happened this past weekend. You can watch it again on NBC Sports Gold. The coverage is there. This course in Denmark is absolutely fascinating. Some are calling it the hardest cross-country course they've ever seen, including Shalane Flanagan, who's there with the Bowerman Track Club coaching this weekend. She said it was the hardest cross-country course she's ever seen. It's got a sand pit, a mud pit, a crazy climb up on top of this roof of a museum in Denmark. It's a 2K loop that's got crazy undulations and then these obstacles. And so you're going to want to check it out if you can. You can watch it on NBC Sports Gold, but go look it up, see how these races play out. I think the U.S. teams are really strong, so it'll be interesting to see, especially the women's team, how they can perform on this course. And I think the challenge of the course means it's anybody's game. I'll, of course, be doing a recap of it, but you should go check it out, see if you can watch it, and at least look at the the updates. Let'srun.com is there with, a, with two people covering the event, so they've got a bunch of great coverage. So, of course, I would go check that out. So, there you go. Just some announcements to start things off, and then we're going to jump into this book or this discussion on Ryan with Ryan Hall on his book. Ryan Hall doesn't really need an introduction, but as you know, he is the the fastest American marathoner ever has run 204 58 did it in Boston that of course was the year of the tailwind and because of the downhill nature and the point-to-point nature of that course he does not technically have the American record in the marathon but he is the fastest American that's ever covered the distance he did it in Boston he's the only American to ever go under 205 of course also has the American half marathon record still in his name and he's a two-time Olympian We'll talk about all that stuff in the interview, and of course he covers it all in the book. So without further ado, let's bring Ryan on. Welcome, Ryan Hall, to the studio here at Rogue. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. It's good to have you. We were just talking as you came in about how this is sort of the perfect place for you. We've got the running side, and we've got the CrossFit side. You could do deadlifts and go for a run all in one spot. 
It's made for made for Ryan Hall. I know. I feel like I'm at home here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So excited to talk to you today about your book coming out soon on April 16th is the on sale date. It's called Run the Mile You're In, Finding God in Every Step. Before we jump into the book, I wanted to first talk about a subject that I know is near and dear to your heart, which is your wife, Sarah. This episode will release before Boston, but she's gearing up for her first Boston against a really, really oppressive field. We just got the full fields uh, out last week as we record this in February. Jordan Hesse, Des Linden, the defending champion, obviously in the field. This is her first Boston against a stacked field that includes Edna Kiplagat and several runners who run under 220. You're her coach. Are you excited about her racing Boston for the first time? Yeah, I'm super excited for her. You know, like she's watched me do that one a bunch of times. She knows how much I love that race. She's heard all my stories and seen it unfold, you know, so I know she's like been wanting to do it. It's been a bucket list race for her forever. And she was supposed to do it last year. Um, she got a little bit banged up and we had to withdraw and then she ended up running Ottawa. Um, so this is going to be a very redemptive year for her to go back and finally get a taste of Boston again. It's like you were saying, and just a really stud, you know, star studded field. So, um, I'm really excited, you know, as a coach, I, kind of the same way as when I was an athlete, I didn't really pay too close of attention to like who was in the race and all the statistics and how fast they ran, you know, like as an athlete, I was like, just being like very focused on like, I just need to do the best job that I can do and be focused on like excellence rather than being like, I need to try and find a way to beat this person. Um, and that was kind of reflected in how I ran Boston, you know, most times when I'd go to the front and push, cause it wasn't at the end of the day for me, it wasn't about necessarily winning the race as it was about going after excellence. And I talk about that a lot in the book. Um, but that's kind of the same philosophy I have even with coaching my athletes now is it's, you know, it's, I love having studded, you know, really packed fields that are really high quality so that those can draw the best out of you. But like, that's the reason behind all of us coming together and racing together is like, we're supposed to make each other better and we're supposed to make each other be able to run faster than we could run if we're not in a, a really high quality field like that. So um, I'm excited about the field. I think it will draw out the best of Sarah and um, you know, we'll see what happens. on. So the what's day. your advice, Sarah, go to the front push just like I did <laughs> in 2011. No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. I, I would, yeah, that would be my advice if she liked doing that, you know? And so I always tell my athletes I'm coaching now, like you got to find what makes you personally excited out there. So for me being in the front, that's where I wanted to be. That's where I loved. That's where I love being. That's where I thrived. That's where I came to life. That's where I felt all of my energy, you know, and I was able to maximize my performance by being in the front, even though technically speaking, it's harder to run in front than to sit behind someone. Whereas Sarah, she's much different than me. She's always like thrived on a kick, like going back to when she won Foot Locker, you know, she started in like last place over the first <laughs> mile and ran everyone down um, in the second half of the race. So for her, like she needs to play to her strengths and for her tucking in is a better strategy. So, um, I hope that you won't see her in the front <laughs> leading the way, but something will be wrong. Yeah. I, I love, I love being a fan of Sarah because of her story. Obviously she had an amazing high school career winning state in 3,200, 1600 cross country footlocker champion, had a great college career, hadn't maybe had the, the blue chip pro career that everybody expected given her high school and college pedigree but she stayed at it stayed at it and of course has amazing breath 
steeplechase Pan Am Games gold yeah. medal. She's got two World Cross teams on her resume, several U.S. Road Championships, U.S. Road Marathon Championships, and her fastest year for the half in the marathon were last year. So she keeps getting better and is somebody who's becoming sort of a sneaky outsider for the Olympic team next year. So what's it been like for you to be a, on the front row seeing all of that? Because you knew her back in high school. Yeah, yeah. It's I feel like she's always been on the cusp, you know, like like NCAA. She was second a number of times, just like always just shy of winning, you know. And with the trials, like she's been like a high finisher in the trials a bunch of times, but never in that top three getting her a spot to the Olympics. So, and not that it's all about that, but it's fun to see her like getting closer to developing like her max potential. And I don't think we're there yet. You know, I think she still has a couple of years until um, we can get her marathon, half marathon time down to what she's capable of. Um, but it's just been really fulfilling for me as both a husband and a coach to see her continue to improve. And I think really a lot of that goes back to what something I talk about in the book. One of the, the themes, the chapters is about listening to your body. And it's really interesting for me to contrast me to her and my approach to, yeah. to training was just like so rigid, you know, like if it was on the schedule, I had to follow it. I had to do it. It didn't matter if I was tired or a little bit banged up or things weren't right. Like I was, I I had to, I was, I was a servant, a slave to this schedule, you know, whereas Sarah, she's very good at like, she feels a little niggle. She's like, you know what? I'm just going to cross train today or a couple days or whatever. And it's like, not a big deal. It doesn't start this huge downward spiral. Um, so that's why I learned from her, like, you got to listen to your body. If longevity is one of your goals as a runner, um, cause you know, being rigid, it worked for me to some extent, but not, that's why Sarah's you know, 35 and had the best year she's ever had last year. And I had to retire when I was 33. Yeah. It just goes back to listening to your patience. body. Yeah. Patience. What's it like coaching your wife? <laughs> it's got its good and bad days. I'll be <laughs> honest. Um, you know, there's, there's challenges, but, uh, there's, I think a lot of advantages too, you know, like I know exactly like what she's thinking when I send over the training, like I'll write in there and be like, I know this isn't what you want to hear, but this is what <laughs> we're doing. And this is why, you know? Um, so it is, it's a different dynamic than me coaching my other athletes, you know? Um, it's less of like me calling the shots and it's more of like a dialogue between us. I mean, at the end of the day, she does trust me when I write her training, like she does what I write down for the most part. <laughs> but, uh, um, it is more of like a dialogue and she's a very seasoned runner too, you know? Yeah. So she knows her body super well. She knows what she needs. And even me as a coach, I do that with all my athletes where I'm like, I need to know, like, are you craving a certain workout or like, what do you feel like is going to lead you to your breakthrough? Cause I think we kind of know stuff intrinsically about ourselves, and we kind of know what we need, mm -hmm. you know? And sometimes we just need a coach who's willing to listen to that and implement that. Plus, there's those confidence-building things, whether they're right on the schedule or not. You might need that confidence-building thing that gives you the mental mm -hmm. edge that you need to, to take that next step. One of my favorite moments with you and Sarah is watching her sit in the back of the press truck and talk to FlowTrack at the time, they're very young in their yeah, days, yeah. about your race as it unfolded in Houston in 2007 where you got the American record. But her honesty and sort of relatability in that moment I think made that moment so much more powerful as I was sort of experiencing it myself watching it from yeah. from afar and 
in that race, you talk in the book about fearlessness mm-hmm. and being bold. Yeah. Obviously, in that race, you were bold. We were just talking downstairs with Max, our store manager, and he was talking about how you know, he was in that same race and passed you going the other way, and Meb was nowhere to be seen. Meb was yeah. way behind, yeah. and yeah. nobody expected you to be that far out front. So talk about fearlessness as it relates to that race and then how you approached fear in your career. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I think I go back to like the years and years leading up to that, having been through what I would consider to be like worst case scenario, you know? So like, for example, there was tons of races. Like I think about when I ran a mile indoors against Bernard Lagat, I was in high school as the LA indoor games. <laughs> and uh, I was a senior in high school. He was like 326 guy or whatever, you know? Right. And uh, I remember going out with him, you know, the first 800, I went out with him and I just blew up, you know? <laughs> and that's just one example of like hundreds of times that that happened, you know? So I lived that kind of like worst case scenario over and over and over again. And so I knew that I could handle that, you know? And that's, I think, a big element of taking risk is you got to know that like you've been through it before and you're going to get back up and get back up. And then I think the other big part of it is just like identity, you know, knowing who you are. Like my favorite verse, well, one of my favorite verses in the Bible says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. It's interesting to think about that. Like, your righteousness being linked to being able to get back up because it seems like righteous people don't fall right like that's why they're righteous but it's actually like their identity knowing who they are that allows them to get back up you know like their failure isn't them it's something that happened to them but it's not who they are and so it's like that for me with my running you know it's like i might fail i might blow up but I learned throughout my career and it's a continual process. It's not a one-time thing that I'm not defined by my performances. My performances are something that happened. There's some good ones, some bad ones, but at the end of the day, that's not who I am and what makes me special. It's hard to believe that though, right? Sometimes I'm a parent. I've got three kids. I know you've got four daughters. One of the things that I want most for them in life is to believe in themselves, to have that identity that you talk about so that they can separate people's views of them, circumstances from that belief in themselves and that confidence. And part of me wonders, is it genetic? Is it something that people were born with innately that they kind of bring that confidence or is it something that's nurtured? And as a parent, I'm consciously aware of that. How do I nurture that? You talk in the book about your father nurturing that in you and and bringing sort of confidence to you by saying, Hey, this is a tough guy. Yeah. (laughs) So, Uh so talk about that and the role of other people in your life to create that identity and that confidence. Yeah. Yeah. I really believe you can and should, it should be something that's constantly being built. You know, like I said, like, I feel like I'm still like working with that to this day with myself. Um, and it really, like, it's amazing when people say things, how that does speak into your heart and like, encourages you for years and years can set you on a totally different path um so that's why it's so important i think that we surround ourselves with those kind of people who will speak life into our life you know and and will give us confidence and um i'm i'm with you like with my kids like i'm constantly trying to think of ways that i can instill identity in them you know and I, I think a lot of it's just like through our words, you know, um, I'm big into like declarations. I do it with myself in the morning. 
I get up and I do my Bible studies and I like to like declare like I am this, I am this, I am that. And that's such a powerful way for that identity thing to really go into your heart, you know? Um, there's such, such power in our words. Um, and when I do that, it's amazing like how much better my day goes for the rest of the day because I, I started it with like reminding myself who I am. Like one of my favorite um, scenes from a Disney movie, and I don't watch a ton of Disney movies, but... <laughs> Um, is Lion King, and uh, you know, I think he's looking like into a lake or something. He sees his dad, like his reflection in the lake, and he's like, "Simba, you've forgotten who you are," <laughs> or something like that. Right, you know, right. And I, I feel like that with myself. Like so often, I'm like, man, I just totally lost sight of like who I am. You know, um, and so I, I constantly am reminding myself of that. For a while, I had a picture, the screensaver on my phone is the picture of like a little cat and he's looking into a mirror and he sees this big lion in the mirror. <laughs> and I was like, that's, it was just my reminder of myself. Like what, what am I, how am I seeing myself right now? Yeah. It's a constant, it's not a one-time decision. It's a constant thing that I believe can be built. And like you're, you're saying like through community is a extremely powerful way to do that. What do you say to those that say that sounds cheesy, right? We've, we have, a, we had a mental training series on our podcast where we talked about tools you can use to build yourself up one of them being words of affirmation or yep. declarations yep. like you're talking yep. about and and i tell people that as a coach before a race declare what you want to mm-hmm. take place on that day write it down post it on something say it out loud to yourself but i often get back that response well that's so cheesy like it feels weird doing it yeah what do you say to those people that are skeptical yeah no it is it does feel cheesy at first it does feel weird like i agree with them you know like the other day, my daughter, she was really struggling with something at school and she was saying like, I'm not smart. I was like, okay, that's our cue that we need to turn that around and make it the opposite declaration. So I made her say it, but it took me a long time to convince her to say it. She's like, dad, I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it. <laughs> like it was like this constant battle, but I was like, no, like this is when you need to say it the most because you're believing a lie right now. Yeah. And so like to those people, I would say, I totally get you. I understand. Like it does feel cheesy. But when you actually speak it out and you do it over and over and over again and you give it a good chance, I think you'll see that there is power behind it and it does actually work. So I just encourage them to kind yeah. of push through that kind of uncomfortable <laughs> weird weirdness at the beginning. The other thing I tell them is do it in your bathroom in the mirror by yourself. I mean, oh, what, yeah, what's yeah. the risk of that right. with, when it's just you? Yeah. No one has to know. Well, that's a great place to start because if yeah. you can't do it with just you, then doing it in a group environment is going to be way harder. You yeah. Know? So I want to go back to where you really start the book, which is about your beginnings as a runner, where you had this vision from God essentially to run 15 miles around Big Bear Lake where you grew up. And that ultimately that led to you in a fatigue state afterwards, sort of having this belief or message from God that you were born to be one of the best runners in the world and to compete at that level. Talk about that. What did that how did that come to you? Was it words? Was it imagery? Was it a feeling? Tiredness, <laughs> lack of carbs. Yeah, completely carb depleted. <laughs> no, I think I think there is something to be said though for being tired and like hearing God's voice. Um, today's world, like I know I'm like so distracted by a million different things going on my phone, uh, social media, whatever it might be, you know. But when I'm just like getting back from a run like that or I'm out running, it kind of removes all those distractions and it becomes a lot easier to connect with God. So um, I think that was actually a huge element of that was just like 
quieting my mind, quieting my body, being open and receptive to hearing God's voice. And uh, yeah, that was just the launching point for me, you know, like we were talking earlier about identity. It's like knowing that from the time I was 13 allowed me to conduct and hold myself that way from that, the very onset, you know, like that was my expectation that that's, that was the end goal was to run with the best guys in the world. And so having that allowed me to go through a lot of really hard times, like I talk about in the book, like dropping out of school at Stanford and um, battling depression and all that stuff. Um, knowing, being able to fall back on that original vision and be like, I haven't done what I feel like God was telling me I needed to do yet. So I need to keep at it, you know, and you got, it's really nice to have that, especially as a youth, I think to, to know where you're going and know that I'm going to go there no matter what adversity is in my way. When you're 13 and you get that message as a basketball player who wanted to be a pro baseball player, who probably didn't even know what that meant, <laughs> run with the best in the world. Right. What did it mean to you then? What did that look like? What was the, what was the picture that you yeah. saw? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, to be honest, it wasn't super clear, you know? Um, I'd watched the Olympics before on TV, so like that was kind of what I was thinking, you know, is the Olympics. And, you know, it was interesting now look, reflecting back, having been through my career, that I didn't necessarily feel like I was telling me I was going to be the best guy in the world, and I never got to that level, you know? Um, I just felt like he was telling me I was going to be running with the best guys in the world. And that's kind of how it played out, you know? But to answer your question, it wasn't, it wasn't super clear. It wasn't like a vision. I didn't, like, see myself running the London Marathon or in the Olympic Games or anything like that. It was just more this, like, deep sense in my spirit that, like, one day I was going to be mixing it up with the best guys in the world. Your faith is obviously a huge part of this, as evidenced by the subtitle, Finding God in Every Step. You've lived that very outwardly your entire career, so I don't think it would be any surprise that it would be a big part of this book. What would you say to those that don't believe, that maybe don't share your beliefs about the book? Yeah. I would hope that, you know, people um, who don't share my beliefs would still like find some nuggets in there, you know, and because I really feel like my faith, like it's empowered me and I feel like everyone should have a belief system that empowers them, you know. Um, so I would hope that they could see how my faith has empower empowered me, how it drove me to get to accomplish some of the things that I would accomplish and inspire them on their own journey in both running and their own faith journey as well you know like I'm very okay with people not having <laughs> not sharing my beliefs you know that's not my goal in the book or just in how my live I live my life my goal is not to convince people to become exactly like me you know like I hope really my goal is like to reflect the love of God to everyone because um, that's what I believe I believe we're all made in the image of God and that we should reflect God's love back to everyone we encounter. So that's really my goal in sharing my faith. Yeah. Well, I can say to the skeptics myself that as somebody who's been a fan of yours for a long time, the consistency and the authenticity with which you convey your beliefs without judgment, without or pressing it on anybody, is refreshing and different from, I think, what does jade people about the topic those that are inconsistent or hypocritical, you, you, you've never demonstrated that. I mean, maybe you have in pockets. I mean, we all have our moments, yeah, right, no of weakness, but 
But and so I would say give it a chance because I agree with you. There's some really, really good nuggets in here that I think anybody can relate to regardless of whether or not they share those beliefs. Yeah. And I know like for myself, like we were just doing a podcast with Lance earlier and Lance Armstrong, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Lance Armstrong. <laughs> we're on first name basis. <laughs> right. We did a podcast. Yeah. Um, but looking at him, for example, it'd be very easy. I think for all of us to just judge Lance and be like, he made a huge mistake. Um, now like, he has zero credibility and we can't glean anything from his career. But I'm very much the opposite. And a lot of that comes from like reading the Bible and reading the scriptures. It's like, like David is a huge, like hero of our faith. And yet like, look at some of his shortcomings, some of the things that, you know, he murdered a guy so he could steal his wife. And yet we still like read his words. We're still inspired by his story. So it's like the ability to be able to spit out the bones and eat the meat, you know, I think is really, really important. And for people reading this book, I'd hope they'd do the same thing. Be like, you know, I don't agree with this, that, and that. But, like, there's some really good stuff here that I could take and apply in my own life. Any surprises from the Lance conversation? What was that like? <laughs> uh, it was fun. It was fun. You know, I watched him as a kid growing up um, on those mountain stages. And I swear, you can just, like, see the power coming out of his legs when he was breaking away from people. It's just super fun to watch so i'd met him before briefly probably wouldn't remember before he ran the boston marathon actually Mm -hmm. um so it's fun to like actually sit down and have a full conversation and uh yeah he's he's an interesting guy and you know i think we can continue to learn from guys like lance because uh we were talking about how like he said he got his phd in suffering that was his (laughs) degrees and uh, we can relate on that level i think learn a lot about how to suffer well from him Speaking of that, you talk about pain in the book and suffering a lot. You had your moments of suffering and failure, which we'll get to in a second. But on the suffering topic, what what did you learn there? I know you talk about it at various times in the book. One thing you talk about is getting outside your suffering, really? sort of looking outside. And you have a couple of experience in the book that you relay that kind of thing where by focusing on others, you were able to actually find mm-hmm. a new place for yourself in a race. So give us an example and then talk about that concept. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, the, book, the example, one of the chapters is about the Beijing Olympics where I talk about how I was in the middle of the race and it wasn't unfolding how I wanted it to unfold. You know, I had high hopes of going after a medal. I was sitting back in like 50 or 60th place. I don't even remember it, like 10K into the race, you know? And I, and I just remember just pouting, you know, to God, like praying, but it's like pout praying, you know? I was like, <laughs> why is it going like this like i'm so frustrated right now what's going on and in that moment feeling like i was telling me i want you to start encouraging people around you so i stopped feeling thinking about how hot i was with the heat and humidity stopped thinking about like how my race and my dreams were unraveling in front of my eyes and i started looking at other guys and how i can encourage them so you know it's super simple a few words here and there but that doesn't typically happen in elite marathon anywhere. A guy will come up next to you and like <laughs> encourage you. Right. Not that usually it's not, there's nothing negative said typically, right. but um, usually not a lot of encouraging competitors is going on out there. And I didn't really feel like doing that to be honest. Didn't want to, but I've learned that like when I feel like I'm sensing something from God, when I act on it, it brings life to me. And like, I've learned to trust that like to trust him, you know, and trust that, when he's telling me to do something, it's because it's good for me and because it's good for everyone. So I started encouraging guys that I'd, I'd catch in the race. And I remember as I was doing that, 
just feel like my body kind of relax, kind of find its own rhythm. And like, it was like I was back, you know, I don't know if I think probably all the runners who are listening to this could relate to that sensation of, you know, sometimes you, you're running, you just feel like you're just hitting your head against a wall. Like your stride's not right. Your rhythm's not there. Like something's just like off, but you can't really identify it. And that's kind of how it was in Beijing. And then when I started encouraging people, I kind of found my stride again, started feeling good again, and then started gradually kind of working my way through the pack and ended up, you know, in 10th position, 10th or 11th. I can't even remember. I think it's 10th. You finished 10th. <laughs> I finished 10th. Okay. So it was 10th. Um, I've never been like a numbers guy. Yeah. <laughs> They're getting Ritz more was 9th, you were 10th. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, things went a lot better that day than they could have gone had I continued down this like downward spiral of, of being really turning intrinsic and thinking about me a lot. So I try and implement that with my athletes now. And I try and tell them like, let's find people to encourage out there. Like, let's think about how you can make your competitors better. And that's, you know, I, I realize probably not all coaches would jive with that and, and want to do that. But I feel like it's almost like a, it's a performance enhancing thing to do. It, but kind of counterintuitive, yeah. you know? That allows you to relax in a way yeah. and kind of get back into your own stride. That day, many talk about as a day that marathoning changed. Samuel Wandrew mm. went off the front, ran a time Unreal. in the Olympics yeah. on a hot day that nobody expected, set yeah. the Olympic record. Yeah. He ran in a lot of ways like you ran yeah. in 2011 yeah. Boston, just went off the front, yeah. did crazy things. Yeah. Everybody thought he would blow up, but he just never did. Yeah. Did you have interactions with him at all? I have one funny story. So <laughs> after the race, I had never talked to him before. We'd raced at London uh, earlier in the spring, and he also ran really well at London, but I think he was second there. And uh, anyways, after the Olympics, after he won, I go to the dining hall, and like I'm going to take a two-week break. I go in the dining hall, grab all these cookies, donuts, <laughs> like whatever I can get my hands on, you know? And as I'm walking out, I just like stuff my face, feel terrible, you know? Like, like terrible like my body feels terrible also like shame kind of like oh right. why did i just do that that was stupid and <laughs> as i'm walking out i see sammy walking out of the dining hall and he's got this like giant handful of like fruit just like all this fruit <laughs> i was like the very oh, opposite man he's running he's rubbing salt in my wounds right now <laughs> beats you in the race and makes better choices in the yeah. olympic dining hall yeah but was, we did get to know his family a little bit years later. Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately he had passed. Yeah. Um, but and tragically, you know. Yeah. But it's really cool to get to to meet his wife and kids and get to hang out with them. But just goes to show too, like, you know, it's not like all about gold medals and winning. It's about um other things in life too, like yeah. like family and and also too, just that we're never guaranteed tomorrow. You know, like I was so shocked. I remember hearing the news when he passed. And I was like, "What? Yeah, that, that couldn't have just happen." But yeah, it's too bad. It would have been good to see him go head to head with Kipchoge. Yeah, at some yeah, point, because those two would have had some epic battles. I would yeah, imagine. I know. So talk about your Olympic experience for a second, since you brought it up. What was that like? Was what was the weirdest thing about the Olympics for you, or or craziest thing about the whole experience outside yeah. of racing, of course? Well, one thing is uh, from the 2020, 2020, 2012 Olympics in London. Uh, it was one of the coolest race atmospheres I've ever raced in. You know, like I said, I have, I was always a cycling fan and watching the tour, and I was always jealous how like the crowds like right on top of those guys like mm. cheering super loud on them. It's yeah. like a little tiny narrow passage they're going through it you know it's always like man that must be so amazing 
but that's what it felt like in London. That atmosphere is just like electric. The the roadway was small. It felt like people just right on top of us, especially compared to Beijing, where we were. Ba- they had the crowd pulled back from the course quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So, um, that that like really high intense cheering kind of was dialed back a little bit in Beijing. Um, so the atmosphere in London was just like electric. It's one of those things I look back on now. I'm like, man, I wish I would have been having like a Houston day there or like a Boston 204 day there when I could have really like honed that energy that was out on the course. Cause it was, it was really epic. And for me to like notice that when I'm feeling bad and running bad, it really speaks to it. It was even more right. so, you know, cause right. you know how you remember your worst races. <laughs> You're just like, Oh, I don't like that city. I don't Negative. like that food. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't like it, that course. I don't like anything about it. So, but I had nothing but like positive, um, feelings with it, but funny story. So after the Olympics, you know, I dropped out first time I ever dropped out of any race was definitely like heartbroken. Um, and then the next day, uh, we go out and we're just exploring the city with my family and stuff. And we pop out of the uh, subway, and as soon as we pop out, it's like there's like a, a not Krispy Kreme um, donut shop, or not a cinnamon roll. What's the Cinnabon? Cinnabon. There's yeah. a Cinnabon, like right there. And cinnamon rolls is like my thing. There's like, a theme I here. There's a theme here. Post race Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Going sweet. And so, so I see it, and then at the same exact time, Sarah sees that I see it, and she sees my eyes just like, <laughs> and she's like, she looks at me and she says, "Don't do it. Don't do it." And I was like, "I'm doing it." Like, there was no uh, taking me back at that point. So I, I go in there, I get a Cinnabon, and then like I trying to find a place to eat it but it's all crowded and it's all like people who were there for the olympics and stuff you know so i like go out into this little tiny alleyway and i sit down on the curb and i think i'm like all by myself eating my cinnabon and i look over and like some ladies like snapping a picture (laughs) of me eating my cinnabon there's ryan hall (laughs) drowning his dnf (laughs) (laughs) so we we get now that you have a sweet tooth didn't know that about you yeah i don't blame you i've got one myself (laughs) so Speaking of failure, obviously you didn't have the day in London that you wanted. You didn't have the day in Beijing that you wanted mm-hmm. either. You talk in the book about if you fall, fall forward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you talk in particular about the experience at the New York City half before you ran Boston in 2011 and ran a 204 and change about how that failure sort of set the table, running a bad time at the New York City half somehow set the table for your real, really your signature marathon in Boston in 2011. So talk about that and how people can channel failure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you asked the question because I think it's super important because I wonder how many people, like when I look back at that, so that New York City half, I think I still don't know my time to this day. I never like looked it up. It's like 64, 65 minutes, which, you know, that's like a 210 marathon if you can double that. And I was a month out before Boston. So not a lot changes in your fitness in that time frame. But I just think about like wh- how that could have just totally derailed my Boston, you know, and how like it would have been very easy for me to be like, there's no way I should go out faster than whatever I ran at New York, 64, 65 minutes for the first half. Whereas like we actually came through the halfway point of Boston Marathon that year in 61, like 50 or something like that. So, you know, that would have never happened had I not been able to move past that failure and that disappointment. And that doesn't mean like it was easy for me to do like I was so bummed out after the New York half like I walked back through the Manhattan for like a five mile walk back to the hotel just like hoping to like 
find some encouragement, you know, in myself and try and figure out what just happened. Cause there's no injury. There's no stomach problem. There's nothing wrong. Like I had, I had zero day. excuses. It's just a bad day, like a really bad day, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so, but really like how I got through that failure was just keep moving forward. And that was something that's kind of a theme throughout my career is, um, when I'd fail, if I just got a calendar out and I'm like, okay, I just did terrible at this race or whatever, but here's this race in three months I'm getting ready for. And I put it on the calendar and then I'd start like plotting out how my training and racing was going to look leading up to that. And that just helped me like be forward thinking, you know, like it says in the Bible, like forgetting everything that's behind and pressing on towards the goal. It's like, we have to have amnesia to some extent about our past failures. And that was something I also heard um, on the radio one time, randomly going to USA cross country, uh, this sports uh, psychologist saying that we have to develop instant sports amnesia to our failures. Like we got to forget about it completely and start moving forward. Um, so I'm just really grateful that like I learned those lessons in my career leading up to that point. And I was able to like keep me moving forward and not not have that failure dictate to me what my future was going to hold. Yeah, it's important in running, especially because one day you could have a terrible day. Yeah. The next day you could have the yeah. best run of your life. And sometimes you just can't explain it, Yeah, which is frustrating it for is. us runners. I know. But the other thing I want to point out to people, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, is that walk you made back to the hotel four or five miles through Manhattan just because you're like, man, this sucks. I'm just going to walk back and yeah. try to process it. I do think that was an important part of this the process too, uh -huh. of just sort of letting yourself sort of marinate in, in, the, in the, all the feelings that yeah. might have been associated with that totally. bad day, which allowed you to sort of then move past it, I would assume, the next day when yeah. you woke up and said, all right, now I'm looking ahead. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. And something that Sarah talks about a lot, she's like, I'll allow myself to like be sad and, and mourn the loss kind of for yep. a certain amount of time. And maybe it's a day, maybe it's a couple hours, like just whatever you're feeling, you know, but like being like, it's okay to like be heartbroken about this right now, but I'm not going to stay there. Yeah. And you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> a, few yeah. <laughs> a handful of weeks later, you're in Boston, perfect weather, tailwind. Yeah. Which... But let me say like, you know, stand on the starting line and, and as I was going in that race, it wasn't like I knew for sure I was going to like pop a big race, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I, it still was had still a step of faith, yeah. you know? Yeah. It was still like a little bit scary at times when you're looking down at your watch and you're seeing these splits and you're like, eh, it's pretty early <laughs> to be running four forty miles. In the <laughs> right. <marathon." laughs> right in Boston. And everybody predicted there would be fast times that day because of the weather being right. perfect. But right. But you set the race. I mean, you set the tone from the very beginning, went off the front, and everybody fell in behind. And that ultimately resu resulted in the fastest marathon ever run at the time. Obviously not a record-eligible course. And a 204-58 for you. What was that like? I mean, at what point did you sort of let go of maybe this is a bad idea and say, all right, this is awesome. <laughs> I'm committed. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm committed. I think after halfway, you know, like, after I saw my split at halfway, I was like, man, I could like run really bad this next half and still come away with like a personal record, <laughs> you know, Hill's still coming. Yeah. yeah. And I remember too, like I just set like attainable goals for myself at that point. Cause I knew like I'd gone out faster than I've ever gone out before. So my goal wasn't necessarily to run 440 
five miles that I had to run to run 204. It was like, I remember looking at my watch and it'd be like, just get under five minutes, just get under five minutes, which was easily attainable for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really important when you're racing is to have those kind of goals that you know you can hit. Because as you hit those, it just builds this momentum, excitement. And also for me, like going out fast, being ahead of schedule, I always got really excited about that. I'm like, like I can jog the last mile in six minutes and I'm still good. You know, like I would, I would let that be like, Oh man, I'm banking all this time. Let's see how much time I can bank. You know, not always the best advice for a marathoner, <laughs> but you know, do, 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 no, as, it is. do as he says, not as he does. It's physics, right? It's like an object in motion. <laughs> Stays in motion. Stay in motion. Yeah, so make that in a, that inertia, that motion, make it fast and just hold it. So I remember watching that day on the live feed, and when you crossed the line, you were obviously super overjoyed by seeing that time and getting under 205. I remember as a fan being frustrated with your joy because I'm like, damn it, he got fourth. You know, I wish he had won this thing. You know, yeah, he, right. he made the race. Everybody else sort of drafted off of him and it sucks that they beat him. Yeah. And so I sort of was carrying this negativity towards, you know, your joy in that moment. And Honestly, it took me a while to process that as a fan. Uh-huh. I'm like, yeah. come on, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> but reading it back now, and obviously with that result in context, you know, we've had many tough years between yeah, then sure. and now, especially last year with the crazy weather, which resulted in super slow times. To be able to do that on that day should have been something we all celebrated. And as a fan, I also use that as a way to remind people, as, a, as, as we are fans in the U.S., that you got to celebrate all positions, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not just first, not just second, which tends to be our nature as American fans, yeah. especially in distance running, because there's some amazing thing, amazing things happening at fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, back, back to 10th, potentially like your result in the Olympics that should be celebrated too. Yeah. And so I think that's an important thing for us to realize as fans of this sport to elevate us distance running is we got to make sure we're celebrating totally. all levels yeah. of performance. Yeah, I agree. And like looking back at that race, like I would actually, I'd be more happy with 204 and be fourth place than I would with winning in 207. Like really? to be totally honest. And I know like a lot of people would be like, you're crazy. Like that's, <laughs> you know, winning Boston is a huge deal and it is yeah. a huge deal. But for me, like I said, it's all about excellence and getting the most out of yourself. And that's why I was so happy on, at the finish line there. I was like, man, that was everything I had on the perfect day. And I remember coming through mile 25 and this thought went through my mind and I was like, make this count. You may never be in this position again. And sure enough, like I was never in that position again. I don't think that was like a prophecy. I think it was just a good reminder, like make every single race count. The goal is always to get hundred percent of whatever you have on the day out of your body. And if you do that, no matter what place you are, no matter what time you are, you should be able to celebrate or you should make the choice to celebrate it. I wouldn't say you always feel like it, you know, it's not right. necessarily a natural reaction to have, but I think you can choose to celebrate those moments, even though, yeah, it's still, you know, it's the fourth fastest time ever run on Boston in 120 years. And yeah, it's fourth place, <laughs> yeah. but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. I was part of the most, historic one of the most day. historic days on Boston's course, you know, not probably the most, but yeah. um, certainly a very memorable day for a lot of people. And you made the race. You mentioned excellence there. You, you talk in the book about competing with a heart of excellence versus a heart of comparison. And I think that's a really interesting point, especially in our world today of 
it's hard not to compare (laughs) to people in in the ages of social media and sort of seeing everybody's highlight reels out there and and you know it's it's hard for us as humans to be excited for other people when they do well because there's jealousy that often comes with that right so talk about that mindset of competing with a heart of excellence versus a heart of comparison yeah and that was a long process for me to get to that point and then you know it's an ongoing process to stay in that point but really how i arrived there is just from my own personal experiences um being so frustrated with myself and like like experiencing even when i was successful if if my goal on the starting line was to beat certain people like and if if i was successful and i beat them then it's still like something in my spirit didn't feel good about that. You know, it's like, I'm getting all this joy just because I beat this person. And really like, is that what my running should be all about? And uh, it just didn't feel right in my spirit, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of learned over the years, like the way that running is the most fun for me is not to try to beat people. It's to try and like get everything out of myself that I can and being very focused on that. And a lot of that comes back you know, to my faith and looking at Jesus and how he interacted with his disciples, where I believe it was John um, who was asking Jesus about like, well, so he just got described to him how he was going to die. You can imagine what that would be like, like Jesus is telling you about how you're going to die. And so he points to, I believe it's Peter. I might have him flip flop. I can't remember. But he's like, well, how is he going to die? And Jesus says to him, don't worry about him. You follow me. And that just always like really stuck with me whenever I'd feel myself comparing myself to other runners, be like, God's got something totally different for them. And if I'm focused on what God has for them, then I'm myself going to feel like in lack, like I'm not getting a fair shake. You know, it's all like based on what someone else is getting that I don't have. So I just, from my own personal experience, I find it so much more fulfilling when I'm focused on what does God have for me for today? be focused on that rather than what he has for someone else yeah especially that's important in running too just because we all are on different trajectories well what works works for one person doesn't work for somebody else you got to have your mm-hmm. own path mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard for us to stay on our own path it is but good advice there carrying that to the 2014 boston where you tell you tell the story in your book, which is I think the first time I've heard you tell the story because it it came out on Let's Run dot com. I think through other competitors that yeah. in that race when Meb won, you sort of directed the other Americans in that that trailing pack not to chase. Mm-hmm. You, know, you were chasing yourself. You decided not to chase, and mm-hmm. then you instructed others to not chase, and they all accepted. And then Meb got the gap that he was able to hold on to yeah. just barely yeah. <laughs> down the stretch there in it, on Boylston. So what was that experience like for you of not having the day that you wanted to have, but then thinking about Meb and giving him an opportunity in the same moment? Yeah, it was, you know, a really interesting race for me, um, you know, because I had high aspirations on the starting line of trying to win as well. My training, I'd been trained super hard in Ethiopia and was feeling really fit, ready to go, you know, so it wasn't like an easy conclusion for me to come to in the middle of race. And actually I've never done that before in the middle of race where I'm like, I'm not going to push with everything I have. You know, the goal was always like redline it as long as you can and just hang on, you know? Um, but that day I could tell like Meb was on and I've run with him enough, trained with him enough. I can tell when he's feeling good and he was feeling good and he got that gap. And I was like, 
for a while, like you said, I was chasing and I was like, this just doesn't make sense. Like if I, if I was Meb right now and he was me, like I would not appreciate him keeping all these African guys close to me, you know? Right. And part of the reason why I don't, I haven't like talked publicly about this story a whole lot is just because I don't want to, you know, at all try and take credit. Oh, Meb right. won because I held everyone back. Like the African guys had every opportunity to go chase Meb. Yeah. Like, I just didn't want to be the one and I didn't feel like Americans should be the one leading that charge, you know? Yep. So it's more just like a team tactic than anything. Like Meb, he ran like Amazing. crazy, you yeah. know, like and his fitness was there. His training was there. Like he, he did it hundred percent on his own. Um, but there was like a community, a team kind of feel to that, that it doesn't happen very often in marathoning, but we do see it like with, a. Des, you know, last year's race, she stopped with Shalane yep. and then went to the front and was trying to help Shalane out. And then she kind of found her own stride and, and ended up winning the thing, you know? So I'm hoping that that can be part of like a legacy that I can leave people is like how we can compete like as a unit, as a team and like encouraging guys, like we talked about earlier in the podcast along the way. Yep. Um, so yeah, that was just, it was a bittersweet day. You know, I remember coming up over heartbreak and just being way back and being so frustrated with my own personal race and how I was feeling. But then I remember like I shouted to someone cause we have no idea what's going on in the race and I couldn't see any of the guys in yeah. front of me. I remember shouting to one of the spectators like, how's Meb doing? He's like, he was winning when he came past here. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, oh good. Yeah. He got over heartbreak and he's yeah. winning. He's probably set, you know? Yeah. I was in the race that day running much further behind. And I remember around mile 18, somebody shouted Meb one, Meb one. And I remember dismissing it instantly because he wasn't a favorite. That was a stack field that yeah. year. And I thought there's no way Meb one. And I didn't hear it again until I was walking past the finish line. And I saw on this whiteboard that they had up that he was first. And then, you know, sort of broke down in tears myself knowing yeah. what that meant to yeah. Americans. What was that like when you found out at the finish? Yeah, it took forever for me to find out. I don't know why. <laughs> like, that was the first question I asked to the first volunteer that I encountered after the finish. <laughs> and, like, they wouldn't tell me. Like, they thought it maybe, like, I thought that the race was so close they didn't know who won or something like that. I was like, how do you guys not know who won? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? Right. But it took me, like, five minutes to figure it out. But when I finally figured out, I was... I was super happy for Meb and I was like, oh yeah. Like talk about a day that we needed an American to come through and win that race. That yeah. was, that was something that's like definitely worthy of a, a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Who will play Meb? So <laughs> Meb will play Meb. He's still <laughs> Meb going. Play Meb. Still Meb going. could he probably looks, still do it if he wanted to, right? He looked exactly the same. <laughs> I saw him the other day. So he retired, you know, in yeah. theory, and he's, <laughs> theory. he looks exactly the same. I was like, man, what are you doing, man? Because right. most runners, when they retire, they don't look the same like two <laughs> months later, you know? Yeah. But he's like, oh, I'm running like 80 miles a week. Oh, like, my god! What are you running wow. 80 miles a week for? So that's some good uh, intel. You never know. I mean, he could run, well, a, he could run a 210 off of that. Uh, he's talked about me coming back. Yeah. I think he's kind of throwing that I out mean, there it's now. It's certainly, it's wide open. Yeah. For the trials on the men's side, it is open. Yeah. What's your relationship been like with him through the years? Yeah, he was kind of one of those guys I always looked up to for sure. Like, I remember when I first came out of Stanford and joined the Mammoth Track Club. Um, I remember we went for our first like long run with him. And I remember like I had to go to the bathroom so bad, but I didn't want to screw up his long run. So I was like <laughs> holding it forever. And I didn't want to tell him I had to stop or whatever. And then eventually, like, I just like dove off into the bushes and I had to like sprint to try to catch up with them. 
And uh, I remember Ian afterwards, he's like, dude, you know, you can just tell him you have to go to the bathroom. Like, it's not a big deal. <laughs> he's a normal guy. Yeah, yeah. But that was, that was kind of, you know, the level I held him at and always looked up to him. And even like my first marathon experiences was watching like him on television running the New York City Marathon. And when we went out to the New York City Marathon, getting to watch him run there and stuff, him and Dina both were kind of huge um people that i just looked to they traveled the road before they i wanted to do the same thing as as they had already done so yeah. it's amazing how well both those guys have aged you know like yeah, dina looks the same too yeah, right she looks great and she's still running well and yeah they they blow my mind <laughs> you look a little different now <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think uh, my comeback would take about 20 years <laughs> put on a few yeah. pounds of muscle for sure Let's talk about your coaching for a second. I know you're living in Flagstaff, coaching at the elite level, obviously coaching Sarah. Who else is now working with you? I know Matt Yano, who got yeah. second at, uh, at the U.S. Marathon Champs, is working with you. Anybody else in that in your group? Yeah, Rachel Johnson. Um, she's getting ready for U.S. Cross and been looking really good in training. Um, I'm really excited to see how she'll do at U.S. Cross. Um, come a long way so excited for her she's focused on like 5k 10k mm -hmm. um, so we'll do outdoor track with her um, another guy Seth Totten I recently started working with him he's ran 214 in Dublin nice. and uh, I've known him for years he's like really good friends with my little brother um, so but that's more kind of remote he's uh, in Santa Barbara so um, yeah just a, a handful and then I also coach some athletes online which is mm -hmm. super fun I have about I don't know, eight to 10 athletes online that I coach. And, uh, it's, it's interesting for me, like even just coming over here, like I got a text from one of my athletes and like, Oh, my workout didn't go so well. And to be in the position of a coach where you got to just be like, even heal, you know, right. you gotta, like, whereas like as an athlete, I wasn't like that at all. I was <laughs> up and down all over the place. And I think it's kind of reflected in my career in racing. Um, so it's interesting now as a coach to try and be more, and like, all right, we're not going to go too high or we're not going to go too low and kind of navigating <laughs> Even that. Keel. So what, yeah. what's different in this and the same now as a, as a coach, what are the things where you say, man, the Ryan and as an athlete, that's stupid. I'm not doing that with yeah. my athletes. And what are the things where you say, those are things I'm carrying forward. Yeah, as a coach? that's a great question. Um, man, I learned so much from the coaches that, that I had the opportunity to work with, you know, everyone from Vinland and uh, Andy Gerard. Terrence Mahan, Coach Canova, Jack Daniels, like my dad. I worked with a lot of phenomenal coaches. So my goal is always to to build off the foundation that they laid and what I learned from them, you know. Um, I would say that I've kind of, towards the end of my career, I was getting very experimental and trying some <laughs> kind of crazy stuff. Like one run, for example, in Flagstaff, there's a road that goes up to a ski resort. It's a seven mile road and it climbs like 3,000 feet from like 7,000 to, uh, well, maybe it's not 3,000 because I think it climbs from 7,000 to like 9,200. Mm -hmm. So I was preparing for, I want to say maybe Boston or something. And I, I did like, well, it was before the Olympics, did like 20 by 400 at the bottom of the hill and then ran to the top afterwards. And looking back on that and be like, <laughs> man, I was just like asking for fatigue, you know, right. like. So there is some experimentation where I was like, that wasn't smart. And I'm not going to do that with my athletes. I'm actually much more, what, how I like to look at my coaching is like, I've learned all these principles from my coaches, um, my previous coaches, and those are supposed to like contain me, you know? And then within those principles though, 
I'm going to be creative. And so that's a big part of my training when I'm writing it for my athletes um, is, is being creative within confounds. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot of the workouts that I did that I continue to do to this mm-hmm. day, especially with the marathoning, you know, especially the last two weeks of the marathon. Like I really haven't switched that up yeah. at all from what I used to do just cause I really feel like it works. We'll make individual tweaks based on the athlete, but for the most part, like I kind of keep that the same. So it's this balance of like sticking to what works, but then also realizing that if you want to get somewhere you haven't been before, you're going to have to add weight to the bar, so to say. You mentioned that concept in the book, which is obviously easy to translate to lifting weights (laughs) because you just pull another plate out. But what does that look like with running? How do you conceptualize that in running? I think it, it looks like uh, trying things you've never tried before, you know? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so maybe it's instead of doing, you know, 12 by 400, it's just adding in a couple reps. Or maybe it's the density of your week. So instead of only doing two workouts a week, you're going to do three workouts a week. It's, it doesn't, I find it's best when it's not huge changes. It's just like very gradual changes changes to your training that you're making you're just barely adding stuff you know adding bar adding weight to the bar and then you're also pulling back from that so i'm a big fan of cycling so we'll add 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 and then i'll pull back down and we'll absorb so Mm -hmm. it's like you're like causing additional stress additional stress but then there has to be that period where you're letting your body kind of catch up you know recover yeah yeah that's if you don't have the recovery aspect of it it's not going to work. Yeah, I call that, to my athletes, I call it consolidating your fitness. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you I know, like you've done the work, now you got to consolidate yeah. that to something that's yeah. permanent. Otherwise, yeah. it's just sort right. of, it's just not real until yeah. you really, really bring it in. So, one of the things you talk about in the book as well, which I think applies to coaching, is goal setting. You talk about heart goals versus right. physical goals. Right. What does that mean? heart goals because I, I was reading i'm like i think i get it but i'm not sure what, yeah. is, what does it mean exactly that's, to, to that's set heart goals question. uh it's definitely philosophical for sure but what i'm looking at is like what are what's a goal that i can set that i can accomplish every time out so even if i blow up in this race ran really bad what can i control and my dad was kind of influential in this area for me as a kid growing up being like control what you can control and like give the rest to God, like let him have the results. And so that's what I I mean by that is like what heart you can always control your heart, you know, like you're in charge of your heart. And so like, can I run with the heart of joy? Can I run with the heart of love? Can I run with the heart of courage? Like I'm going to take a risk this time and I'm going to run with the courageous heart and be fearless. You know, like those are kind of all like examples, but it's it really comes back to the athlete and like what how do you how do you want your heart to be during this race i think is a really important question to ask and focus on that because like jesus taught us like out of the heart flows our actions um oftentimes we want to control how we feel inside by our outside situation and circumstances and um how we train whatnot when really like everything flows out of our heart so that's what I was really trying to get to that. And it is kind of hard to explain, you know, do, do athletes look at you and say, that's crazy, Ryan, I'm not doing that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not everyone like fully gets it, but, um, it is important to, I think, put that out to the athletes and, and uh, even if it's not like 
uh, necessarily heart goal, but just some goal that you can, you have control over. You know, I think mm-hmm. it's really important that like you feel on the starting line, you're like, I know I can be successful because really like we don't know how fit everyone else is in the race. And as much as like, I'd like to promise my athletes, like, oh, you've done these workouts, you're going to finish in the top three. Like, I don't know what everyone else, where they're at, you know? So we don't, we don't have necessarily complete control over that, but we do have complete control over what's going on inside of us. So let's focus on that first. Obviously now you're much bigger as we alluded to in that you put on a lot of muscle deadlifting over 300 pounds, benching over 300, 400 pounds. Okay. Wow. So sorry, I'm selling you short. (laughs) So you've you've gotten into a different sport. It is a big difference. What have you learned from lifting that you wish you knew as a runner? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, I think the biggest thing is just the importance of failure in a workout. And so like I'll have sometimes my athletes like we're going to run this certain pace until like you can't run that pace anymore. I call them body guided workouts. I'm a big fan of it. Like especially with goal pace, it's a little hard to do at altitude. You have to kind of adjust it, but at sea level, you can do it really well. Like I'll do it with Sarah where I'm like, okay, we're running goal half marathon pace. I don't know how long it's going to be for your body's going to tell us after you're off pace, we're going to stop, take a break and then go again. But it's this kind of concept of like reaching failure and then going back to it and back to it and back to it. Because every single day in the weight room, I fail every time. I mean, like today I was doing at the gym, like we didn't, we don't have a setup like you guys have here, you know, it's just like little barbells. So I was doing like curls with like 50 pound barbells, but then doing it to failure. And then when I got to the point of failure, I would help myself on the way up and then eccentrically load it on the way down, you know, and go down as slow Mm -hmm. as I can. So it's like I'm reaching failure like every single rep. And that just like really I think is applicable with running. But you just have to be smart in how you implement it because you can drill yourself into the ground. And that's not necessarily the goal of workouts. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because we were a big fan of long run workouts around here for marathoners where they're doing pace work in the long run. Right. And a lot of athletes look at that and they say, I want it to go perfectly because that'll give me the confidence that I'm ready for race day. As a coach, I hope they fail, to be honest, yeah, yeah. because not only does it push them to that point where they have to deal with some discomfort and pain, but it also pushes them to that point mentally where they have to fight through something yeah. like that. And we all know in the marathon, <laughs> failure in some form yeah. is coming re- regardless. Yeah. yeah. And I'm always proud of my athletes when they do like fail like that. Like Matt, when he ran CIM uh, recently, you know, he was running 210 pace through 30K and uh was still on pace around 210 something through 35k and then had a very tough last 5k ended up losing the race in the last 400 (laughs) meters but like i was way more proud of him than other people just because like well i mean yeah he went for it he (laughs) took a risk he went for it yeah and we found failure we're like okay we know now that you can get to 33k or whatever at 210 pace by yourself when you're time trialing on your own you know and so now like we know where that line is now let's see if we can, you know, keep working on that and get you further next time out. Plus to your point about not worrying about other people, who who would have thought Brogan Austin would have closed the way he did? Oh, he was. We had him like on the podcast train, yeah. in December to talk about his race and the way he finished that race, you couldn't have expected, yeah, right? So that's no. something where it wasn't really in Matt's control how, how yeah. fast he was controlling. No, I, I couldn't even see him because I was on the bike, like biking along the sidewalks on the side of the course and I couldn't see second place runner for the entire race until like the last like 1200 meters. And all of a sudden I saw someone's coming and yeah, he was, he was flying. Last question. And then we'll wrap it up. If you wanted some 
people to take one thing away from your book, what would that be? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> Big one. Um, you know, I, one of the, you know, we talk, people like to talk about like legacy and what do you want the legacy or career to be? And I would hope that number one, that people just encounter the heart of the father of a God who like loves them, who created them. Um, and they would feel God's love for them through, through my journey, you know, cause that's certainly what I've experienced throughout my life. And, um, there's nothing sweeter than that. So I'd say that's number one. And then number two, like, just like, the chapter on identity is I think super, super important for, for everyone and something that I struggled deeply with um for a long time. But especially kids who might pick up this book and read it. It's it's like with my kids now that I'm a dad, you know, like I'm working so hard to try and impart and you know, we were talking about this earlier, trying to impart identity into them. So like kids to like know who they are and know that their value, their worth is not dependent upon their performances there you go well thanks ryan for being here we really appreciate it and for the audience go pick up the book run the mile you're in finding god in every step by ryan hall comes out on april 16th the day after boston if you have trouble remembering that really appreciate it thanks for being an awesome with us thanks for having me there you go that was a fun one with ryan i think a lot of fascinating stuff there and i love the little tidbit stories about his experience at the olympic village so now, as I said, go pick up the book, Run the Mile You're In. You can get it where books are sold. It'll, it's open for pre-order now, but you can also get it officially on April 16th, right after Boston. We will wrap it here for this episode. This has been episode 119 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, check us out at roguerunning.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.